Good morning to you. Welcome. It's really fun to be here and uh, to enjoy seeing you live. I'm usually seeing you from the screen, which, I, you know, if you think I can do that, well, good for you. But uh, I, uh, it's, it's a lot more enjoyable being here. So thanks for the invitation, and uh, it's been delightful so far, and I'm sure will continue to be. When I was young, uh, my mom would uh, fix a meal every night. My dad would get home from work, and we'd have the family meal. And uh, I can remember from the earliest of ages, I just never really enjoyed vegetables all that much. I was not a big vegetable eater. Uh, it certainly wasn't my mom's preparation. She was a good cook, but I just didn't like them very much at all. I was a bean eater. If you could make beans, I could tolerate them and eat them with some enthusiasm. Anything else, I poked. And uh, there was one vegetable that was just at the, the bottom of my list, and that was peas. If you like peas, good for you. I still don't like peas all that much and, uh, and, and have a hard time eating them. I think it goes back to an evening. I was four years old, I believe, and I was sitting at the dinner table. There were peas that night. I don't remember much about the, the meal at all. I was young. But I remember I ate everything but the peas, and my parents kept insisting that I eat it. And I guess I was just sort of chatterboxing away. So they actually took a, a piece of newspaper with a big fold in it, and they placed it over my head. And they said, you will not come out from under that newspaper until those peas are eaten. So I remember my little four-year-old head sitting in there looking at newsprint, you know, about six inches from my eyes. I don't know what parenting book they read to do that. I don't know. But it was, uh, there I was. And I, I remember two things that I came to the conclusion that evening. It was, it, was a, it was a moving evening in my life. First one, hot peas are better than cold peas. That's the first thing I learned. And, and the second thing I learned was uh, eat your peas first if you're going to enjoy the meal. Get it out of the way and eat, them, eat the peas first. So here we are. We're in the series of the vine, and we are in an exploration of the qualities of the fruit of the Spirit. And we, uh, the teach team, we're sort of divvying up these qualities, and I was wondering which uh, qualities I would get and... Uh, the first one they told me was patience, my weakest quality. Can you just imagine, you know, my, my joy at getting patience? Like, you know, what do they know about me? What do I need to learn, right? I get, I get patience. And uh, what we're going to do tonight, or this morning, I mean, is we're going to learn to eat our patience first. Because I would imagine for most of you, it's not necessarily on the top of your list in terms of things that you sort of grab onto and say, that's, that's one of my finer qualities. We are in a text, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, looking at the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul, as he contrasts the, 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 the deeds of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit, uh, qualifies them and, and describes them in this way. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Uh, forbearance is the NIV uh, translations, but most of the translations say patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the qualities of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, just some reminders on this. First of all, this is, these aren't the fruits of the Spirit. This is fruit singular. I think Paul specifically uses the singular form of fruit there. And these are not several fruits, but they, in a composite way, make up the, the fruit of the Spirit. They are different qualities of the fruit of the Spirit as a whole. Just like when you have an apple tree and you have apples, you, 
you, you have qualities of those apples. It's the same fruit, but the skin uh, color is different, the skin texture, the tartness, the sweetness, the size, all those are qualities of the fruit, but it makes up one composite fruit, an, an apple. So this is a fruit of the spirit. Another, another thing is, is these are qualities that are not produced naturally. These are not qualities where we go, okay, let's just work it up so we're gonna do all these things. These are outpourings, the result of the Holy Spirit who dwells in all believers, and in a supernatural way, we get to see these qualities lived through our lives so we can not just enjoy them in terms of the, the, the benefits of our lives, but we can also project God and, and his character to others around us. So I think the fruit of the Spirit is, is the template by which I can evaluate how, how tied in, in am I to what the Holy Spirit is doing in my life, and is, is, is God really in charge of my life and doing what he needs to do to make me into the kind of person he wants me to be as a believer in Jesus Christ. The root word of, of patience is the Greek word macrothumia, macrothumia. And uh, that is a combination really of two Greek words, macro meaning long, and thumia, it's translated in different ways in the New Testament. It's, it's interesting how it can be translated. Some translate it soul, some translate it suffering, um, <coughs> some just translate it in, in terms of life itself. But the, the, the uh, Greek word really literally and the old English word is long suffering, long suffering. If you look at the King James Version, you'll see that that's the word used for patience in that text. So I have to confess to you, as I've already done, I'm, I'm not naturally a patient person. Uh, and I always gave myself a pass here, and maybe you did too, because there are some people that I know that are a little bit more, you know, they seem to be a lot more patient than I do. Uh, I always thought that was more of a character quality or something that, you know, was genetically born into you. Maybe your blood pressure is naturally low. I don't know. But, but uh, I always thought patience was something where you just sort of slowed your life down a little bit. I remember doing ministry when I was uh, in my 20s with a man by the name of John, and he was like, he just exuded patience. He was just so careful about what he said, and, and, and he didn't rush to judgment, and he didn't respond right away. And I, I thought, well, I'll never be like John, so, so I, you know, I probably will never have that quality in my life in abundance. But it's more than just a character quality or something that you're naturally born with. In our family, we, we had a motto, let's get there before all the selfish people do. And uh, so that was sort of our idea of patience. Let's just get there in a hurry. And as Americans, <clears throat> we tend to do that, don't we? Let's get it done. Let's get it done now. Let's get it done fast. Let's go. Well, there is more than that in terms of patience, but there is, there is something to that as well. And I want us to look at a text that uh, is a, a, comes from the life of Jesus uh, in Mark chapter 14, and it's verses 32 through 42. So I'd like you to turn there. <coughs> Excuse me. So patience in the biblical sense is, is much more than being calm or slow or unruffled. It, 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 there's, more, there's a lot more to it. And Jesus demonstrates, of course, all through his ministry, demonstrates patience. But I think this is, uh, from my view, one of the most uh, beautiful examples of how Jesus showed the quality of patience in his ministry 
while he was on this earth. So I want to read this passage, Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And the context for this, of course, is they've just had a, a Passover feast together. It's also called the Last Supper. Jesus is giving his final words to his disciples. He's, he's trying to encourage them and comfort them. They pick up from this, this room and they go to the Mount of Olives, a traditional place that he would go to teach. Uh, it's, it's night, uh, but they leave anyway. They go there and then they leave the Mount of Olives and they go to a garden called Gethsemane. Jesus took Peter, James, and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into in the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go from here. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of God. So these are Jesus' final hours on this earth. I believe, even with the suffering that was still before him in terms of his torture and his crucifixion, I think emotionally, I don't think it got any lower or deeper than this time in Gethsemane because this was a time where Jesus had to stay the course. This is the time where Jesus really still had a choice. Do I, do I go ahead and accomplish what the Father has sent me to do, or is there another way around this? And uh, he was in great turmoil and agony and struggle as he, as he looked at the enormity of this task before him. So three things I see that Jesus demonstrates in terms of the whole idea of patience here, and I want to I just sort of use them as, as a, a points of a reflection for us. First thing is this. Patience requires the long view. Patience requires the long view. Interesting that Jesus, even though the disciples uh, are and, and here are in an upper room, safe and, and out, of, out of the way, no one's going to bother them there, he gets up and he leaves and he goes to a place where they many times can be found and where Judas could find them. He goes from a place of safety to a place really of potential danger when he's thinking of people that are really out to harm him. Why did he do that? Because I think Jesus was looking beyond the stress and the anguish that he was in. He, he, was, he, he wanted to look beyond his immediate situation. And he wanted to get about doing what he was called to do. A lot of times when I'm in a stressful situation, I... I think and many times pray this prayer, God, can you just sort of get me through this and get me to the other side? I just want to get through it. I don't want to be in pain anymore. I don't want, I, I don't, I don't want to suffer anymore. But patience takes the long view. 
This is commonplace in our lives. I remember when I was in grad school, every time I made it through a semester, I, I, I'd see how many hours that I completed, and I would add up those hours, and then I'd, I'd, I'd remember how many hours I needed to graduate, and I'd always find out how many hours I had left to go. And there are some times I just, did, I just didn't want to keep doing all the work and the study that I had to do. And, and what kept me going, what keeps people going, I think, in those situations, is you have to have a long view. You have to view it to its completion. I was reminded of, of uh, Hebrews chapter 11, where the author of Hebrews, if you know that, this text, that he, he gives sort of like the hall of fame of the Old Testament men and women, men and women of faith, men and women who believed God and looked forward to the Messiah and, and lists them by name, these wonderful men and women who, who really went over and above uh, the, the call of duty and, and said, no, we're gonna, I'm going to trust God. But the last two verses of this chapter were a little disturbing to me. Maybe they are to you. The writer says, these were all commended for their faith. Good stuff, right? Yet none of them received what had been promised. Can I just read that phrase to you again? Yet none of them received what had been promised. Well, that's not very fair, is it? Sort of a bummer. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Huh. I'd like to see God's complete plan sometimes. I'd like to know exactly why he's doing it. But patience takes a longer view. If you've heard me speak before, I've, I've mentioned that uh, in, in 2012 I had heart surgery I had to have uh, uh, an aortic valve replacement. It was a chronically defective valve from my youth, and they watched it off in my adult years. And I really didn't think too much of it. I lived, lived a normal life, I ran a marathon. I did all sorts of fun stuff and was pretty active. And uh, I had a regular checkup I had with my GP. He knew of this condition, was listening to my heart, and he always commented on, on the sound that that made. And uh, there, I made it myself, right? And uh, he... Uh, said, when was the last time you had an echocardiogram? And I said, well, it's been a while. He says, no, let me look. He says, oh, that's been, you need to have one of those every year. This is, you can't mess with this. I said, oh, all right. He said, well, let's schedule one. I had one. They called me back into the cardiologist. He, he said, uh, you really do need to have your, your uh, valve uh, replaced. It's, it's, it's time. And I, I remember the doctors, when I looked at him, I said, look at me, I'm, I'm in great shape, I'm energetic, I play tennis twice a week, I have all these activities, I have no symptoms at all. Are you sure the test is right? And uh, he's, he's looking at me, he says, no. He says, I think, I think we really need, to, really need to do this. So here I am talking my cardiologist out of, out of this procedure because I don't want open heart surgery. I don't want to go through that. So I asked him if we could wait a few months. He said, okay, and that was beginning of February. He said, end of April, we'll do one and we'll see. End of April, I went in. After the test, I went into his office. He was sitting at his desk, looking at the computer readout of it, shaking his head. That wasn't a good sign. And uh, I sat down and he said, uh, it's time. And I tried to talk him out of it again. I said, are you sure? Can't they do it a nifty little way, like, you know, just sort of like without cutting me or anything, you know? The, modern medicine. I said, no, nope, I'm afraid that's what we're going to have to. And they said, let me look at something. He left his office. I remember, I know I shouldn't have done it, but I looked, I turned his computer. I wanted to look and see what he was writing, you know. Is this really true? 
And, and here are four words that, that, that gave me, took me from the short view to the long view. I've read four words. Catastrophic congestive heart failure. Man, I had a long view from that point on. <laughs> he came back in. I said, okay, when are we going? Now, did I want that? Well, not short term. I didn't want that. Patience takes the long view. Patience takes us beyond here and now to what really is important in the future. Jesus went to the, to the place where he could usually be found. He knew Judas would eventually be there. His view was long because he knew what was really important, and he knew what needed to be done. Jesus took the long view on that night for you and for me. It's reading a book called Soul Keeping by John Ortberg, and he quotes a theologian, Frederick Faber, and I love this quote. I think it's uh, pertinent to, to this long view that, that we're called to take. Faber says, in the spiritual life, God chooses to try our patience, first of all, by his slowness. He is slow. We are swift and precipitate. It's because we are but for a time, and he has been for eternity. There's something greatly overawing in the extreme slowness of God. Let it overshadow our souls, but let it not disquiet them. We must wait for God long, meekly, in the wind and wet, in the thunder and lightning, in the cold and dark. Wait, and he will come. He never comes to those who do not wait. He does not go their road. When he comes, go with him, but go slowly. Fall a little behind. When he quickens his pace, be sure of it before you quicken yours. But when he slackens, slacken at once. And do not be slow only, but silent, very silent, for he is God. Patience takes the long view, God's view. Second thing. Patience and suffering usually go hand in hand. Aren't you glad you came? All right? Let me repeat it. Patience and suffering usually go hand in hand. You cannot help, those of us who love Jesus and follow him, you cannot help but read these words and have them really sink in deep to your heart and just get a little taste of what Jesus went through for you and me. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And then he says, my soul, this is the Son of God speaking, the perfect man, all God and all man. And he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. What are you suffering right now? What are you going through? What, what challenges do you have? Physical, emotional, relational, professional, psychological, spiritual. What are you suffering? Whatever it is, I can assure you that God is with you in it. I do a lot of counseling, and the majority of that 
counseling deals with people's struggles and their problems, and I'm always, almost always, asked the question, sooner or later, if the person has any faith, and even if they don't, why, why is God doing this? Why would God allow me to go through this? What's he doing? And my answer is, I really don't know, because I don't know. But I always follow it up with, but I know that God is in it with you. He is in it with you. And there's not one thing that you and I have suffered that the Lord didn't go through for us. And God isn't in it and with us now. We were in upstate Washington with our son, daughter-in-law, and three granddaughters, and we were in a small town, and we are going through the town. There's a used bookstore, and I scooted in. I love the used bookstores. I like to browse, and I found a, a book. It was a book that my mom had. It was a, a devotional written in the 1930s, I think, 1920s or 30s, somewhere in there, published, called Streams in the Desert, written by a, a missionary woman, a missionary to Japan, Letty Kalman was her name. And my mom had it, and, and she uh, uh, would read out it often. So I thought, you know, I'd like to have it. Maybe I'll look through it. I brought it home. I didn't, didn't ever even picked it up. My wife picked it up. Renee picked it up. And she began to go through it and began to enjoy the devotionals there. She said, wow, there's some good stuff in here. And one per day particularly where we were going through some tough stuff, she sent a, a phone picture of, of the first lines of this devotional. And uh, the verse of that day was, was 1 Kings 12, 24. Uh, the context is uh, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Solomon was dead. And Jeroboam, not of Solomon's line. They were arguing and, and fighting over who's going to control Israel. Rehoboam was leading the southern two tribes, Jeroboam the northern ten tribes. And they were lined up for civil war, ready to, to have at it. And a prophet comes to Rehoboam, and, and he gives him the word from God. And God says not to fight and, and to send his soldiers home. And uh, the, the uh, devotional, speaking the words of God, starts like this. My child, I have a message for you today. Let me whisper it in your ear that it may gild with glory any storm clouds which may arise and smooth the rough places upon which you may have to tread. It is short, only five words but let them sink into your inmost soul. Use them as a pillow upon which to rest your weary head. And these were the words of the prophet to Rehoboam. Here are the five words. You ready? This thing is from me. God speaking. This thing is from me. God suffers with us. And he allows us to go through these times, and I don't know why all the time, and I don't like it most of the time, if not all the time. But he is in it for his purposes. And one of the purposes is so we can learn and embrace the quality of patience. Suffering does, done right requires and strengthens our patience. Last thing, third. Patience always takes a long view. Patience and suffering go hand in hand. Last thing, patience done right always ends in yielding to God. Always. Patience done right always ends in yielding to God. <clears throat> Jesus prays. 
Abba, he says. Abba, it's an Aramaic word for daddy, papa. Abba, father. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Abba. My daughter, she's in her mid-30s. She'll still come to me from time to time, and when she starts, whatever she's going to say with the word daddy, I know that I'm a cooked goose, really. <laughs> whatever she wants, it's hers. All she has to say is daddy. Jesus goes to his father in one of the most heartfelt expressions of prayer you will ever see and says, Daddy, please, is there any way? You're in charge of all things. You, you, you must have another way. And then he utters the words that literally have changed the lives of millions of people and brought salvation to their souls when he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus didn't only have the long view, and not only was willing to go through suffering, but when it really came down to it, when God called him to do the most important act in all of human history, he says, I want your will. I look forward to holidays. Uh, I love Christmas. We've just done Easter. I've always loved Easter. One of the things I look forward to during those holidays is I, I hear from a good friend of mine, a friend by the name of Mark Warren. And when I was in my early 20s, I did campus ministry in a small school in northern Minnesota. Mark was one of our students. And uh, he was one of those guys that you just liked. He was a good man. And he loved God, and he wanted to serve him, and he served him, uh, not just with his activity, but just with his attitude. He just had a sweet spirit about him. He went into ministry after his graduation, and then he left full-time ministry and, and, and took up a profession, uh, met and married uh, his sweetheart, and, and they began life together in Indiana, full of promise. She's a school teacher. He's in the medical profession. And uh, shortly after he got married, he went to see his doctor. He had some symptoms, and uh, over a period of the next few months, he was diagnosed and confirmed that he had Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. And every Christmas and every Easter, I still hear from Mark. And uh, this last Easter, just a few weeks ago, on Easter morning, I received this. And here are some of the things that he communicated. He says, today is a day that shouldn't be. I shouldn't be expressing love to my beautiful wife of almost 33 years, still married to the same woman. I shouldn't be emailing an electronic Easter egg to dear people in my life. I should be dead. But our loving God of grace had other plans. To be honest, when I chose to go on a ventilator 27 and a half years ago, I thought it might give me another five years of life, maybe 10, if I was really lucky. The fact that I still live with beauty and love and happiness and contentment is an obvious, amazing, remarkable, wonderful, ridiculous, stupefying miracle, explainable only by what Rich Mullins referred to as the reckless, raging fury that they call the love of God. And the only reason I'm living is Jesus, because he lives, I live also. Every day I continue to breathe is a testimony to that loving grace and forgiveness of sin I never deserved but was granted so that I may speak and point to my risen Savior. 
But sometimes I get to thinking, my stupefying survival results from my devotion to Jesus. And as Johnny Erickson says, my spiritual health and vitality must not hinge on my commitment to Christ, but on his commitment to me. His everlasting arms are the only thing that lift me up in times of joy and in times of despair and dismay. They restore, preserve, comfort, support, and hold me close to his heart. My atrophied arms typify the hunger and the want in which I must live if I'm ever to experience the beautiful loving kindness of his provision. Then he quotes Psalm 27. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, oh, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Mark's able to communicate those words based on a wonderful invention called Dynavox. You know how he communicates? The only muscle he can control in his body is the muscles in his eyes. And he's able to look at letters on a screen. I don't even know how they do it, but letter by letter, word by word, every Easter, every Christmas, I hear wonderful words of God's love from a very, very patient When I think of my own suffering, when I think of my own challenges, I do like to think of Mark, who's learned, not because he wanted to, but because God had him learn what patience really means and how you can enjoy and embrace life when almost everything else is taken away. Our eternal destinies were dependent on Jesus Patience. Patience certainly demonstrated in Gethsemane. Patience that took the long view. Patience that embraced suffering. Patience that ended up by saying, God, it is not my will, but your will that needs to be done. It's his example that you and I are called to live every day. Every day. You and I are called to be long-suffering even when it comes to that very difficult person in our lives. Or that memory that just keeps coming back and doesn't seem to go away. That job situation that's not going well. That relationship that continually seems to go off track. Or that health issue that won't resolve itself. Whatever it is. I believe... A consistently long-suffering person is perhaps the closest to modeling the life of Christ. We are called to it. And you might think, well, that's impossible. Yes, it is impossible, unless we go to our knees and say, Lord, we need your spirit. We need your power. And we would like to see this quality supernaturally produced in our hearts. It's the fruit of the Spirit. So I want to encourage you to eat your patience first. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for what he demonstrated to us in the most beautiful of ways, but in the most passionate of ways as well. Thank you that he was willing to suffer for us, for me, for every person here. And I pray that each of us, every man and woman in this room, myself first in line, would be called to a Christ-like life. Lord, we need patience. And by your spirit and through his power, we ask that that would be demonstrated in the most beautiful of ways in our life. For your glory and for our joy. It's in Christ's name we pray.